I'm Roger Citron, and um, I'm an associate dean and professor of law at Toro University, Jacob E. Fuchsberg College of Law. And this is the Toro Law Review podcast. And today our guest is Greg Zipes. He is the author of Justice and Faith, the Frank Murphy story. And we're going to talk today with um, Mr. Zipes. Uh, about his book and about Justice Murphy. And to start us off, um, if I can call you Greg, um, Absolutely. please tell us um, a little bit about yourself and, and how you came to write about Justice Murphy. Sure. Um, I am based in New York City. I'm a lawyer uh, and I work in further government in New York City. I also teach at NYU. I teach a bankruptcy class at NYU. School of professional studies, so a, a bunch of non non attorneys, but um, in the financial industry, and um, and I have various interests. I grew up upstate New York. Different people have different definitions of upstate, but I grew up in Dutchess County, New York, which is about sixty miles north of New York City, and um, and I was close to the FDR house and museum when I was growing up. My parents took me there a lot. They had a lot of reverence for FDR, um, and. Uh, I often return to Dutchess County. I have friends up there and family members. And so I um, went to an exhibit at FDR, uh, at the FDR Museum, and they were featuring the Japanese American internment. This was um, a dark time in American history. Uh, during World War II, Japanese Americans, um, through Executive Order 9066, FDR's order, um, uh, were exiled from the West Coast and sent to interior camps, uh, uh, internment camps, concentration camps, there are different words for it, which maybe we can get into a little bit later. But um, I, I started to wonder, did anybody stand up to this at the time? This was during World War II and, um, and rights were being trampled in the United States. And I came to Frank Murphy and Frank Murphy had written a famous dissent in Korematsu uh, where he condemned this internment as racist. And um, I started looking into him because I'd gone to law school. Uh, I went to UCLA, UCLA Law School and I hadn't, uh, I'm sure we discussed it, the Korematsu case at some point, but it wasn't really sharp in my mind at the time. Um, and, and I started looking into him and became intrigued with him because he seemed to be um, in a Forrest Gump type uh, situation throughout the early 20th uh, century where he, um, just seemed to be involved with a lot of important events in American history. And that brought us to the modern administrative state and uh, the modern, uh, how we conceive of civil rights and how the government should operate. He was involved with a lot of that. He was the mayor of Detroit. He was the governor of Michigan, among other things. And uh, he, he came up through the trial ranks of the Detroit community as well. So. Um, I, I became intrigued and I basically wrote a book. I, it, it, I never ran out of steam on it. And, um, and two years later, I had a, a finished product about his life. Um, and it, it was one of the most um, uh, interesting and um, fulfilling things that I've done in my professional career. So um, I, that's, a, that's a long answer, I think, to how I got to write a book on Frank Murphy. I commend you for getting to the finish line and getting the book <laughs> published. Um, many aspire, 
not all complete. So um, <laughs> congratulations for that. And uh, when you describe him as this Forrest Gump figure, um, I completely agree. Because one of the questions I have here, and I think I'm actually going to ask it the way I wrote it down, which is, so is there any job this guy didn't have? Um, it's an extraordinary professional biography, living a life that was um, intensely political and intensely legal. Um, so that's something that I don't think we see in the same way today. And I wonder you know, if you could tell us a little bit more about, in addition to the positions that you've identified, the electoral positions that he held, um, a little bit more about his career and, um, you know, what's so distinctive about it as we think about it now in this century. Yeah, so he he became a Supreme Court justice. And I think one one thing that was intriguing to me is, is that um, the Supreme Court justices today, whether they're on the left or right, they, they sort of follow a certain path to the Supreme Court and, and it's sort of, they, they, they go to a top school and then they clerk for on the Supreme Court and they, um, and they might do a few years in a big law firm uh, and they, they follow a certain path. They're, none of them have really run um, big agencies in, in their past. None of them have been governors of, of states where they had to communicate with the people and to articulate their views in a way that ordinary people would understand. Um, and Frank Murphy had that ability. He had to run for office and, um, and he had to be able to appeal to a large group of people. He had to represent people he didn't necessarily agree with as well. And um, so he, he was um, a governor and he got elected uh, to, to a large state, Michigan and Detroit. Detroit was a much bigger city uh, than it is today, both in number and also the country was smaller in population. So he, he ran the fourth largest city in, in the country at the time. It was the center of, of um, scientific management and the auto industry and everything else. And, um, and he had to deal with a lot of uh, Republicans. He was a Democrat, but he had to deal with a lot of Republicans. It was basically a Republican state. Um, and so he learned how to communicate with people. And, and they took that with him to the Supreme Court. And I think he had a, a very pragmatic view uh, of how to deal with issues. Um, we're, we're taught to cite precedent as lawyers, and I'm talking mostly with lawyers or lawyers to be here. And it's very important to cite precedent. For him, not so much. I think his, his point of view was more what makes sense um, and to try to get to the result. Um, in that way. So um, I, I don't think I made my lawyerly disclaimer, by the way, at the beginning, which is I, uh, I do work for um, uh, the government and my opinions expressed here shouldn't be construed as, as the opinions of my employer. And I, I do try to be careful in that regard. And it's important that I be careful and separate the two. Yes, thank you for, for putting that in here. And we'll include that in the introductory text to the podcast to make it clear that the conversation we're having, um, that you're talking to us in an individual capacity and the views expressed here are your own and in no way reflect on those of the government or your employer. Um, so thank you for, for uh, including that here. Um, uh, there's, there's sort of two true tracks I wanna pick up or two threads I wanna pick up from your last comment, um, uh, which is, can we put some dates on 
Uh, we don't have to do the whole, if you will, scene. Yeah. But um, I guess when was he? Uh, the sequence from, if we could sketch it, mayor of Detroit, governor of Michigan, and then I think his last job with FDR when he was federal, when he was in Washington, was it attorney general before he was At, on the Supreme Court? Attorney general, and and people say that he may have failed up to the Supreme Court because he was very aggressive in going after Democratic Party bosses of various cities. Um, and FDR was more of a pragmatist in that, in that regard. He, um, he didn't uh, necessarily want to rock the boat with uh, some of the, this, the um, mayors. And Pendergast in Kansas City, for example, was famous for delivering more votes than there were people um, who could actually vote. They, they voted Democrat. So, Murphy would go after these um, city bosses and he would, um, and there's a thought that when the Supreme Court position opened up, they, they thought they would put him in there to get rid of him from the Attorney General. But to answer your question, let's, um, he was born 18, in 1890 and, and grew up in a, in a small town in Michigan, which it's called Harbor Beach now, it was Sand Beach at the time. And um, the federal government at the time didn't have a lot of um, interactions with small towns. Um, but one thing that it did do was um, it built infrastructure relating to navigation and the waterways. That was one thing that the federal government did a lot of. And Harbor Beach was the beneficiary of a big, it's called Harbor Beach because it, the harbor was built there by the federal government back in the 1890s and, and earlier. And Frank Murphy would have seen the federal government and the power of the federal government doing something good. It, it brought a lot of benefits to his, his town. Um, and the boats would come from Lake Superior um, down to Detroit. It was, they had to sort of pass through Harbor Beach if you looked at, if you look at a map of Michigan and Lake Huron. Um, so he would see a lot of boats passing by and it's um, about 120 miles north of, of Detroit as I, as I think I said. Um, and then he went to the University of Michigan uh, undergraduate and for law school, um, World War I broke out and he decided to enlist in the army. Um, so he, he became a speaker. He was a great speaker wherever he went. And he was sent around uh, during World War I to, throughout the Midwest to give basically propaganda speeches to, to buttress the American um, position in um, World War I. There wasn't universal support for uh, joining the war at the time, and he uh, sort of spread the word and, and met a lot of people and impressed a lot of people. So after World War I, he went into Detroit in, into practice and um, ran for a criminal court judge position. Uh, there's all sorts of things we could talk about in that regard as well, but I think the point is that he had to get elected there, and he, he started his electoral career in Detroit, became the mayor of Detroit at a time when the depression was kicking in 1929, 1930. And he saw people literally starving. There was no safety net as we associate it today with the federal government. People were starving on the street. Um, and he felt it was his duty as the mayor to do something about that. And he ultimately concluded the only way out was to get the federal government involved. And he was a precursor in that way to the New Deal um, and became an early ally of um, FDR as well. FDR gets elected in 1932, and he is appointed 
to as the um, governor general of the Philippines. Um, so he does have a very uh, diverse career. There's a thought that he, as a Catholic, he was being put into this position in order to um, appease um, F Father Coughlin, who was who was very well known as a radio um, one-time ally of FDR and became a um, an enemy of, of that and anti-Semitic as well in his outlook. But at least he was a, a supporter of FDR to start off with. Um, and Murphy was in the Philippines right when the Philippines was being um, set free from United States domination. So he oversaw that. It was a peaceful transition. Um, and FDR brought him back so to Michigan because he was concerned about winning in Michigan. It was a Republican state, as I said, and, and Murphy was, um, was actually a popular Democrat. He brought him back to help him uh, be elected in 1936. Now he's governor of Michigan. And um, uh, so as you can see, there's a lot uh, here that he did even before, before he became a Supreme Court justice. Um, uh, one, one highlight of his governorship was the sit-down strikes in, that took place in Detroit and throughout Michigan. He was heavily involved with settling those and keeping labor and management from breaking out into armed violence. And I think that was a really important event in American history. That's where American history diverged from a lot of other countries, labor and management. Yeah, you could make a lot of arguments that didn't work out that well one way or the other, but at least they didn't turn into armed conflict and uh, and kill each other. And I think that was a real um, uh, benefit of Murphy being involved with that. So this is this all happened before he became um, a Supreme Court justice during World War II. Yeah, yeah, I, um, I'm gonna, we're gonna come back to it. Um, I'm sure. Um, and then he was appointed to the court, was it 1941? Or um, was, it, was it after? It or, was no, it was, it was before, but 1941 before. is when he, um, uh, 1941 is, is right at the beginning of World War II, and he came in before that. When I say World War II, United States involvement in World War II is arguably <laughs> much, much before that as well. Yes, yes. My apologies for um, glossing on the chronology. Um, and well, there, there are a lot of dates, and I um, uh, that that is one of the challenges of uh, of telling someone's life in a um, in a coherent way. I um, when I when I wrote this book, there were different angles that I tried to take in writing it, and I just decided the chronological approach was the best way in the end. Um, well. And so, so here I'll ask the question that tries to try and bridge what we've, what we've been talking about, which is the political career to the career on the court. Um, and I guess there's a couple of different pieces to the, the question, at least as, I, as I'm thinking it through. Um, one is just generally being involved in electoral politics. Um, how did that affect um, how Murphy did his job um, as a justice? And then there's a second piece to that, if you will, at least as I think of it, which I think is, is separate, but certainly related, which is that he was a democratic politician. Um, uh, and then one could even bring into that, perhaps, I'll, I'll let you decide, um, 
the religion, his religion, um, and whether if that influenced um, how he did his job as a justice. And so, you know, one of the things I think that's so interesting about biography, right, as we try to peel away and understand um, a life, um, you know, how those experiences, how they may have influenced um, what kind of justice he was during his tenure on the court. So if you can treat that as a single question with several parts, I'll stop. Yeah, no, it's it, it. These are all things that I struggled with because um, uh, an ethnic person on a court, or noticeably ethnic person on a court, or um, however you want to define that, um, and that's sometimes tricky. Um, should they be bringing in their their past into their decisions, or should they actually be going out of their way to not bring their, their background into their in, into their decisions? Um, so I, I think, you know, one, one contrast to Murphy's sort of, and it's not a perfect contrast, but um, I do mention in my book, um, Frankfurter, uh, Felix Frankfurter and, and Murphy were, were two of the more, at the time, identified as ethnic um, Supreme Court justices, uh, Murphy being Catholic and Felix Frankfurter being Jewish. And um, I, I do think that there was a, um, a difference in how they approached the law, I think. Uh, uh, Frankfurter tried to um, bring out um, in in some of his decisions the fact that America is we should promote public schools, for example. And public schools are a good way of uniting the various different people in our our country. Um, and there there were a couple of Supreme Court cases where the two the two men diverged in terms of. Uh, how they would approach it. One, one involved, um, there are a lot of cases, but two cases in particular after World War II, one involved whether um, public funds should be used uh, to, um, to, uh, for parochial school busing. Um, and Felix Frankfurter thought it was, Justice Frankfurter thought it was important um, to find that they shouldn't be used. Uh, in that regard, and, and he really encouraged Frank Murphy to agree with him on that. And Frank Murphy was originally going to stay out of that case um, completely because most of the parochial schools were Catholic at the time, and I think they still are. Um, and he didn't want to be perceived as as influencing, uh, being influenced by the Pope or or by his Catholic upbringing. Um, and Frank Frankfurter encouraged him to actually come in and say there should be no public funds used for um, parochial school buses. Um, Frank Murphy actually did come in, but he found it's okay to use money in that, in that regard. Um, and the next year, uh, they, the situation was can, in a public school, could you um, use an empty room for, for sort of religious instruction if there was an empty room? And, um, and in that one, Murphy sort of turned around and said, no, um, you can't do it. And he agreed with, Felix Frankfurter in that way, but the two men, I think, often did were were keenly aware of their ethnic backgrounds and their religious backgrounds, and and they struggled with how to make them uh, relevant in their decisions. And it's interesting that you pair them or connect them on this one dimension because otherwise they're extraordinarily different. Frankfurter yep. coming from the most elite 
pedigree or having the most elite pedigree that one could imagine, which was the Harvard Law School professor and, and you know, the kind of person who, why he could be on the Supreme Court today because of, of um, you know, his extraordinary, uh, you know, his connections with Brandeis. Yep. Um, accomplishments. Um, and, and, and so, uh, but in other ways, of course, and that's, of course, very different um, from what you've told us um, about Justice Murphy and his background. Um, the, uh, the other, I mean, since you brought up um, Justice Frankfurter, I, we corresponded a bit about this. Um, FDR's appointments seem to fall into two categories, at least that's how I understand them. There's kind of what I would call, you know, the legends of whom Frankfurter, I think, is one, and his first appointment, Hugo Black, uh, William O. Douglas, Robert Jackson. These are still um, justices. Um, we still talk about them. Um, there, there were, I think, were a number of biographies written in the last decade um, that, that, you know, went back and really told the story of these four justices as a, as a group. Um, and then you have, if I may, right, the other guys, the other appointments that FDR made. Um, Rutledge, Rutledge and Murphy and yes. And, and so did you think about, did you think about that at all in terms of choosing Murphy as a subject? Um, uh, because Murphy, candidly, isn't someone who we spend a lot of time talking about in law school today as compared to some of the, the quote legends. Um, yeah, and I, I, the, the thought is intriguing, uh, it, and history is, is strange in that way. A lot of people are vindicated. Uh, it, today, we would, we would consider their views to be very modern. Um, and there is um, the question of whether it's better to use the carrot or the stick to bring people along. So the, the example that I used was in Brown versus um, Board of Education which overturned Jim Crow and um, separate but equal and, and all the, uh, uh, the problems with that. Um, the word racism is not used in Brown versus Board of, even though that's exactly what was happening. And uh, there's no like browbeating of the South in Brown versus Board either. Um, and Earl Warren was very, um, Justice Warren was very, uh, conscious in doing that. He wanted to bring all the justices along. He wanted it to be a, a unanimous decision. And so to do that, he had to not state the obvious. Um, and you can, you can argue that that's the right approach, you know, to um, bring everybody along. Murphy did not survive that long. He died in 1949. I, I, I speculate on whether if he survived, what he would have done in Brown versus Board of Education, whether he would have gone along with it in the way that it ultimately came down. Um, it, Murphy used the word racism in describing the internments of the Japanese Americans in the United States, and, and it was. Uh, it was the correct way to describe it, but um, it was that the best word to use at the time in a, in a country that was racist, where pe people don't like to be called necessarily racist when they when they are, um, and, and so, uh, at the time when he was like that, he, he developed a bad reputation. Now, does that mean historically he should have been forgotten? Um, and my argument is no, you, you shouldn't be looking at people um, 
certainly look at the context of how they're making their decisions, but on the other hand, look at them, see if they were vindicated and how they described matters at the time. Um, he was he was not uh, remembered partly because he was known as a flamethrower at the time. Uh, he, he would he didn't go along with the majority, even when he agreed with them, he would file a concurrence and it would normally have language that was not accepted by the others. Um, and he just developed this reputation as a Supreme Court justice and all his accomplishments, by the way, because the Supreme Court was the last thing he was on, um, all his accomplishments along the way were, were swept aside and, um, and his Supreme Court career sort of transcended all his other accomplishments at that point. So I think he was forgotten for that reason. There, there were some really good biographies on Murphy um, stretching into the 1980s. Nothing really after that. And Korematsu, he comes up in Korematsu as it, it's one of the great Supreme Court dissents. But other than that, he's really not acknowledged too much. And I think that's, um, my argument is in the book is that he should be reassessed based on modern conceptions of justice. And he was really vindicated in a lot of ways. And one of the things that just as we're talking, and I think this may take us back to the question of the politician as a justice and the relationship between those two. I think it's fascinating um, that the Murphy, as you describe him as a politician, right, who had to um, bring opposing sides together or deal with people with whom he disagreed um, and, and seems to have been fairly successful at it in a number of different contexts. But the irony is that on the court, he won't go along in some Interesting, way. Interesting, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, mm -hmm. That is, uh, and do you have any you know, sense of why that was true for him? Um, and, and just to, to sort of frame it, um, you were talking about Brown, and I think the, at least as I understand the conventional explanation is, Oh, Earl Warren, Chief Justice, former governor, so concerned that in a case with the magnitude of Brown and the controversy attendant to it, that, you know, as a quote, politician concerned about the court's institutional legitimacy, political legitimacy, that it's imperative that the decision be unanimous and that we must all stand together as a you know unified all the justices must stand together as a court which is something that continued well past the 1950s that 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 idea in desegregation cases um and so you know if that's an explanation for why warren did what he did which is to say oh well you know he's a a former governor um, it plays out very differently for Murphy. Do you have any sense of, of why that's true? Yeah, no, it's, it's a really, really good point because I think um, when I say that Murphy um, was concerned about representing various groups on, on, on the court, he, he, his, here's where his Catholicism does come in uh, and his sense of religion. He, he definitely thought the Supreme Court was, was a place where the condemned can look for that final act of justice or um, redemption. And he had a conception that the court was there to look out for the 
despised and the um, people who aren't um, who aren't otherwise represented. Um, and and as a politician, that is consistent with how he was generally as a politician. It it didn't really hurt him. Um, he was very he pontificated a lot as a as a politician and said we have to help the poor. And I, I mentioned Detroit where he he saw it as his job as the mayor to first of all allocate money to feed the homeless and and the starving and uh, to the detriment of everything else. And he to the extent that he had to, he would criticize um, landowners and, and business people who weren't paying enough in taxes. It, it didn't hurt him as a politician. You would think that might hurt him, but he was able to, until he lost his run, his reelection as governor, it never hurt him. He, he was taking the side sort of uh, throughout his political career. And then FDR um, enabled him uh, he he didn't have to appoint him as attorney general after he lost at the Michigan governorship. Uh, there's another governor that I mentioned in my book who lost as well. There were the New Dealers, the quote unquote New Dealers, really lost in 1938 uh, for a variety of reasons. And Murphy and and various other governors lost as well. FDR didn't need to appoint him as attorney general. He did it to send a signal that. Um, he was not down, done politically. Murphy was associated with a certain branch of the New Deal. And so he, he appointed him to show his critics that he still had some fire left in him. Um, and Murphy was someone who, um, who actually uh, was, was promoted. He went they, for keeping his point of view. So I, I don't want to downplay. He, there were times when he dissented and, and filed concurrences. There were, a lot, there were a lot of times that he was part of the majority and he was part of the quote unquote New Deal majority that was upholding New Deal legislation, the, the alphabet soup of, of programs that FDR was, was putting into place. And, um, and he was at the forefront of incorporation, which uh, again, were, were law students and, and, and professors here. So it was the Hugo Black point of view where uh, you want to bring in the Bill of Rights into states. Um, and that was a direct attack on the South. It was the South was really opposed to that because obviously the federal government at the time was was very progressive and was going to go after segregation and and um, and the failures in the South. So there was a, a, a North South divide. Hugo Black, interestingly, was from Alabama and he was a great friend of Murphy, who was from Michigan, as I said, Wiley Rutledge was from Kentucky, and the three of them, along with um, with um, Douglas, formed four out of the nine. They they were a pretty solid block, and how they voted for the most part. Um, and I was able in, in re reading the book. There was um, in researching the book rather, I was able to find a lot of personal notes between Murphy, Rutledge, and, and Douglas, especially, they, the three of them had a very similar sense of humor, even though they um, came from different places. Murphy seemed to connect with everybody. He was, uh, Rutledge, again, Southerner, Hugo Black, Southerner, they, they all liked each other, and they respected each other, and they had fun with each other. So I think that was a secret to Murphy's success as well. He, he captivated Roosevelt. FDR 
enjoyed being around with him as well. And they had a sort of, sort of earthy humor um, and he didn't mind getting picked on and, um, uh, and he didn't mind how, how he was portrayed by the other. So he had, I, I don't want to understate, he, he was able to come to consensus a lot. It was just on certain points, he went on his own and thought it was important to do that. Yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate that because I um, I realized as you were talking that you were sort of, I think correctly, um, you know, balancing out or responding to um, an implication or inference that, that that my question may have suggested. So so I appreciate that. Um, can you, I'm so intrigued by his personality. Is there, are there, is there any other, is there anything more that you would want to say in describing him um, than what you've already said? Um, because, um, you know, there, I think one of the books about the, you know, the, the four, the, the FDR Supreme Court, you know, is scorpions in a box. The scorpions, yep. <laughs> and that's a, or the scorpions, and that's, you know, it comes from that expression. Um, and so that, that someone was able to um, navigate that, um, is, is, is fascinating or are there other aspects of his personality that, that we haven't discussed so far or well let me say this because I I this is my first book that I've written and it's a and it is a biography and um and one of the things you bring to a biography is your own experiences so I in trying to get to the essence of the man or or the woman or whatever you're writing about um you you soon come to the conclusion at least this is my conclusion with Murphy is that there's a lot of unknowns that we're, we're never going to figure out why he went one way rather than the other way. Um, and I, I might have the different context as I say that, but um, one example is right after World War One. He he's, uh, comes back from World War One. He has all sorts of connections. He's already established himself as a very successful trial attorney. He's coming back to Detroit, which is this dynamic growing city um, at the time. And he had, um, and he could have gone into the business community and he could have actually, at the time, the Republican party was different than it is today. Um, it, it had a big tent and he, he could have joined the Republican party um, and moved up the ranks as a politician, been, been pretty progressive uh, as well. Um, but he made this decision to become, to, to go into the US Attorney's Office instead and to take this course as a criminal court justice. Um, why did he do that exactly? Not, not clear, there might've been some uh, overarching reason that he wanted to do that or might've just been that the US Attorney's Office position was open for him at the moment and he went in and that, that set his course in that direction rather than as a business attorney. He, he knew all the, all, all the car company um, executives, including Walter Chrysler, the Walter Chrysler. He, he was, he knew him very well. He was offered, Chrysler offered him the general counsel position at Chrysler Corporation. He was the godfather of his, his um, either children or grandchildren. Um, he was a godfather, he, he never married. We, we, can, we can mention that as well. He was a bachelor his entire life. Um, and he, he um, and that is, an element of his background, which uh, we could talk about as well, but he, um, uh, why, why he went in certain directions is not entirely clear, but he had a very 
strong sense that he had to help people. Um, and, and it was driven by his Catholicism to a certain degree. I, I, I don't think there's any question about that. Can I just pause on that, which is like the idea of service and mission and concern for those less fortunate. Is that a, is that coming close, even though it's a sort of oversimplification in a shorthand when you, when you mention his Catholicism? Yeah, there, there was something called, and I'm not Catholic, so one of, one of these um, uh, interesting things was to bring myself up to speed, um, and uh, so there, there's, some, there's a doctrine, a paper um, by the Pope, 1890s, called the Rerum Novarum, which basically was a response to, um, and I'm grossly simplifying this right now, but um, it was a response to the growth of communism uh, in the urban areas of, of Europe. Um, and the Pope, obviously, the Catholic um, ca communism is godless. And, and um, that was a source of uh, friction between Catholics and, and, um, and the labor movement at, at times. But this was the Pope's response to that and he, his, his attempt to give uh, a Catholic gloss to helping uh, the worker class in Europe and Murphy and a lot of young Catholics were very taken by that. They, they, it influenced them greatly. Murphy was a practicing Catholic. He went to, um, mass whenever he could. He was, when I was in Harbor beach doing research, there's a Catholic church that was, that was basically founded by his mother, um, more than his father, but his, uh, and he, he every time he went back to Harbor beach, he would, he would go to mass. He would mingle with the locals and he would stay afterwards and they discuss um, uh, religion. He, um, when he was sworn in, he, to his various positions, he would have um, the Bible open to Isaiah, a, a section where you have to, in essence, help the poor and, and the oppressed. And that was very important to him. So um, yeah, he, he did have this underlying core value, but you can, say that a lot of about any religion there's there's religion teaches x but a lot of people in that religion might have opposite views um uh at a at a, at a passover table there's going to be any number of political views uh expressed and and so uh that that is an example of how people in the same faith could go in different directions. But he, yes, I, I agree with your sort of assessment of how he looked at his life and how he approached uh, his, his politics and his judicial philosophy. Um, let me, I think I have maybe about, I have a ton of questions, but I think three that I think I'd like to get to um, uh, in this discussion. Um, the bachelor piece that you just mentioned, and I feel like it would be incomplete, our discussion would be incomplete um, without giving you an opportunity to say a little bit more about that um, and what you were make, able to make, you know, what were you able to sort of sort out and how you came to what you think about um, that aspect of um, the justice's private life. Yeah, so um, I think about 20 to 25 years ago, um, it was important to articulate if, if there was a justice who was, who was um, gay or um, had a different lifestyle, um, 
it, and it's less important today, I think, because I think there's more of a tolerance in society. Not, not that we've gotten all the way there yet, but it's, there's more of a tolerance and it's, there's less of a need to sort of point out this was the first person or this uh, in this certain area. So about 20 to 25 years ago, the question was, was Frank Murphy the first gay justice on the Supreme Court? And, um, and I looked into this question a lot because um, my book might've become a bestseller if I had actually gotten the answer to that. But I, I, I had to conclude that I, I really didn't get the answer to that completely. He was a bachelor. There, there is a lot of evidence that he had a, a male companion um, for his entire life. The two men were generally in the same place. I, I mentioned his, his wanderings around the world and, and Edward Kemp was generally with him every single time he moved to the Philippines, whether it was Washington or the Philippines or Detroit, uh, he was there. He went, he met him at the University of Michigan and they were, um, they were companions throughout their life. I wasn't able to answer the question. It would be irresponsible for me to conclude, in, in my opinion, others I think would, would differ, but it would be an irresponsible for me to conclude one way or the other. But, but the, other, the other question there is, what is the relevance? Like, what, yeah. is, is, it, is, it, is it relevant at all? Um, and, and it could be relevant because if he was secretly um, one way and it's not, um, and he couldn't articulate it, he might become a fan of the underdogs. He might, he might back up underdogs generally, but you could also go the other way on that and say uh, he would overcompensate and maybe be harsher. We, and there are all sorts of examples of that in politics where um, someone you know, is, is identified ultimately in, in one way and they, they took the opposite tack. So I, I struggled with this question um, as I wrote this um, as I wrote my book, and I do think it's relevant to explore, first of all, because I'm trying to give a picture of his life, but also um, uh, to try to figure out if it influences his point of view in some way. Uh, or, and um, so, so that's, that's a long-winded answer. Um, I, I should also point out that terminology is, yeah. is tricky uh, and it's even changed within the last 10 years. I'm sure, I'm, I'm certain that a lot of the words that I use in, in the book 10 years from now, it, they're frankly not gonna be the right words 10 years from now or 20 years from now. And I, I put a little uh, disclaimer at the beginning of the book saying, uh, you know, I'm just doing my best here. And I, I think that people get, um, People sometimes are persecuted just for trying to live their life, and I'm very conscious of that. And words do matter, but um, uh, so so I'm not even sure that this discussion to make <laughs> to bring this back. I'm not sure this is even going to be a relevant discussion at all in 20 years if it's going to matter to anybody 20 years from now, or it might be very important. I don't know. Yeah, no. Um, my way of thinking about this is you know, that uh, language um, both, you know, at the time, that is to say in the 1930s and 1940s, or even before that, um, you know, language reflects um, not just culture generally, but, you know, how we think about um, certain concepts or ideas, you know, to, to sort of put it in an abstract way, 
our understanding of what is public and private and and you know uh within those spheres of public and private how we think about you know conduct or actions um uh in those spheres and of course um the way things were when Murphy was alive are very different or were very different from the way they were say the 25 years ago that you referred to in your answer compared to now compared to the future you know when um you know what you know which you've already sort of <laughs> preempted um in, in the book um and so I, I sort of come back to the relevance question which I think you've you've discussed, which is, but I think in, in some ways I wanna make sure that, you know, is there anything more to say about, at least from what you could, you know, find out about Murphy to him at the time, whether it would have consciously been quote, rel you know, relevant or mattered to him. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah, no, and I, I think it, um, so I wasn't able to find anything and it's, it, and it's interesting. Um, there's, there's, um, there are books on, on code words that were used at the time. Um, and, um, and those code words were used in association with Murphy, um, in newspaper articles, um, and, and just sort of conscious acts describing him as stroking the hair of, of a young female that he's with um is it, it's it's sort of going too far uh, in describing um two people out 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 on the town it's 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 a certain detail there that that um maybe that was a signal at the time but again like any anything else or might have just been what it was that he was <laughs> stroking her hair at a, at a um at an, at an event um so it's it but there were signals it certainly would have been danger and even fatal to him politically and maybe his life as well if it was if it was a public matter um at the time that he was active in in washington dc uh congress was investigating um uh, gays and lesbians and they were losing their jobs uh at the time that he was active um supreme court justice so uh, he would have had to be extremely discreet um and and just circling back again he was um in the U.S. Attorney's Office during Prohibition, there were speakeasies, and he loved going. He loved the nightlife. He loved going out, um, and so he he would have learned the value of being discreet. He he knew how to be discreet, uh, which is also intriguing to think he he was able to separate his public life from his private life. He was he had enough resources to rent out suites um, uh, in hotels. Uh, and there would always be three or four people staying with him. So um, he was able to hide that, uh, that aspect of his life. Um, the, the, the second question I wanted to ask, I, uh, I apologize if it seems like we're abruptly changing course, but I know we've talked about Korematsu um, yep. and his descent in Korematsu. Um, were there any other decisions that he wrote um, as a justice that you feel um, have been overlooked or are worth calling our attention to? Uh, yeah, he's he's written. Um, how I would describe his cases are that they are modern, uh, and and so they don't strike us as being that 
out there, but at the time he was criticized for him. And I, I, I wrote in my book about the first case uh, that he that he wrote as a Supreme Court justice. It dealt with um, picket uh, strikers uh, and picketers at, at a um, at a plant. They these workers who were uh, striking for higher wages, um, and typically um, the way the law worked was they were treated as trespassers. The police would come in and arrest them, and it wasn't a free speech type of issue that they, they're asserting their rights. Uh, today, there's obviously um, uh, the unions and collective bargaining and everything else. That wasn't around at the time. And by, he, by writing decisions, sort of upholding worker rights in that context, he's getting the ball rolling in that regard. Uh, so a decision like that wouldn't necessarily uh, jump out at us today because it just seems like, okay, yeah, we, we accept that picketers can be on picket lines in, in front of factories. Um, so I, I think that's an example of, of a type of case. And as you go through sort of the New Deal cases, um, he is uh, heavily involved with, with New Deal upholding New Deal legislation, but um, he was accused of being a hack, sort of a democratic hack. And he, there is a case as well, and I'm, I'm, I'm not describing the, the particular names of the cases, they're, they're in the book, but I, um, I'm doing that partly because it's just a blizzard, it would just be a blizzard of names, but also um, there, I, I think the facts are important. Um, so if, if he was a democratic hack, um, he would have sort of, gotten behind um, democratic machines. And there were, there were parties that ran after World War II, um, uh, sort of the one was a progressive party. It was Wallace, he was a um, vice president of FDR and he, he was basically opposed to the Cold War. Um, and he wanted to reach out to the Soviet Union and, and everybody was nuclearized and he wanted to go in a certain direction. So he, he, he tried to get on the ballot in Illinois and Illinois had a requirement that you needed a certain number of signatories in every single county in, in the state, no matter how big or small. So um, he couldn't get the uh, signatures in all, all the counties. Uh, as a result, he couldn't get on the ballot in Illinois. That goes up to the Supreme Court because he had plenty of supporters in Illinois. It was just that he couldn't get signatures in the rural counties that were highly populated. And, um, and Murphy said he should have been, uh, he should have been on the ballot. He should have been able to run. And if he had, that viewpoint had prevailed, I think we would have a, a different political system today. It wouldn't be necessarily the two party system that we have today. It was, um, so that that's an example of where he he ultimately failed and his viewpoint didn't didn't come through. But it it does belie the fact that he was it goes against the fact that he was somehow not just a hack. hack. Yeah. Yeah. A voting Democratic on the court. Um, and then the, the last question I have um, and because as we were talking um, and you mentioned Justice Douglas, um, there's a view of Justice Douglas that as long as he was on the court, which was a very long time, I think he still holds the, the record for service on the court. Um, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, 
that ultimately he wasn't happy or very happy on the court, depending upon, you know, which of the, at what point, you know, Douglas, you know, you're, you're referring to and Douglas's time on the court. Um, I guess Murphy was on the court almost a decade. Nine, um, nine years. Yep. And um, do you think he was happy on the court as a justice? So I think at that level, everybody has higher aspirations. And um, Douglas, and by the way, Douglas and Murphy were, were great friends. Um, and they had a, a sense of humor, which was a little bit troubling, which I described in the book. I, I, I think they, um, they would get into a lot of trouble today with some of, some of the things that they were doing. But um, at least their public face was um, that, they, that they were uh, upset that they, this was the end of the line for them. Uh, they, they had higher aspirations. Murphy, I think his time had passed by the time he was put on the Supreme Court. He might have, he might have been appointed as a um, Secretary of War or Secretary of State, something like that. But I, I don't think he would have been considered for president. Now he was he was a Catholic as well, so that would have been an impediment to him. But I, not I, as I described in the book, I don't I don't think it would have been a a um, a deal breaker for the American people. It's uh, but his his time had passed. He he did express the view that he wanted to do other things. At one point, he said that he wanted. To um, and he was serious about this. The Philippines were under Japanese control. He wanted to be um, uh, put on assignment in the Philippines to be dropped behind enemy lines. Um, and he, he he was serious about this. He wrote to um, Marshall and um, who who's subsequently did the Marshall Plan. Um, and he and he did join the army in World War II. Uh, so he he did want to serve in a combat role in World War II, and that also made him that contributed to his the sense that he was a bit strange, uh, and contributed to that overall perception. Um, yeah, yeah, that's uh, um, how old was he when he died? He would have been he, he was about fifty nine. So nine, yes, and he was in and he was the and he was declining in health for the last two to three years. Um, so um, uh, as I wrote in the book, if, if he had lived another 10 years, if he lived to the age of 69 rather than 59, he would have, um, he would have been part of the Earl Warren court, or maybe that would have been a different court uh -huh. altogether, but he would, have, he would have remained. It's not too much to think that he could have lived 10 more years. Um, and, and it would have been very interesting to see how he, he would have navigated in that in the 1950s. Um, also, he he um, tended again to uphold civil liberties, and the whole McCarthy era uh, was just coming to the fore when he passed away. He was the subject of the Dyes Commission back in 1938, which is the forebearer of, of McCarthy's. It's the same committee in, in the House, and he was accused of being a communist or a communist dupe for settling the sit-down strikes in Michigan. And, and helping the workers to um, establish collective bargaining and unions and everything else. So he, he knew the sting of that firsthand and, and he didn't have a chance to be a Supreme Court justice during the McCarthy era. Yeah, that, I, I, in the book, I, I know that um, you do um, 
if you will, like uh, the sort of historical what if. Um, mm -hmm. um, in, in, in some detail, and it's a really interesting thought experiment, um, certainly there was a liberal block that uh, dissented on civil rights issues until Warren, until really until Chief Justice Warren, Warren becomes Chief Justice. Um, and uh, it, it seems likely if he could hold other things equal that he would have been part of that block. Um, but, uh, you know, as always, things, things, were, things were in flux in 1949, things were in transition. And when we talk about legacy, Warren, Warren is actually a really good example of that, because if you go back to the World War II era with, with the Japanese-American internments, he was the California governor, the governor and the attorney general, and he was all for getting rid of Japanese-Americans without any regard to their rights whatsoever. He, um, and, he, and he used vile language, but he's remembered as Brown versus Board of Education Chief Justice, uh, and and rightly so, but Murphy is not remembered in the same way. Uh, even though he was generally on the on the right side throughout his entire career, including um, as we can look back on the Japanese American internments in World War II, he was, he was on the right side of that. Um, and and as you go through his career, he's generally on the right side of history. His definition of racism during Korematsu. I, I think is is a definition that we would embrace today. It's it's the same sort of definition that he the way he looked at it is the way we look at it today. It was radical at the time, and you can make the argument that if he didn't use that word in the Supreme Court case, maybe we wouldn't have the same conception of racism today. Uh, uh, so he he moved the debate forward by using words like that, uh, and and so you can see where I'm coming down and using words like that sometimes, and even though they're not strictly legally relevant to the situation. Um, I think that's actually really a very apt place to end because it sort of you know uh, it mentions the dissent as well as uh, the Korematsu dissent, um, which of course is quite significant. And also, of course, you know, points to today, uh, uh, which is, I think, how you, you know, in describing Murphy as modern. So um, I want to thank you, really, really thank you, um, Greg, for taking the time to talk with us um, about your book. And it's been a really, really interesting conversation um, for me. So uh, again, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you.